right, I think most everybody's come back in, and if you're still out in the foyer, come back in, and we're going to start by uh, singing. We're going to sing Cornerstone here in just a minute, and um, why don't we go ahead and stand? I know we'll be sitting for a little bit yet, so stand up, and let's praise our Lord and Savior. Jesus. We praise you this evening. We give you honor and glory. We thank you that you are the one that heals our damaged hearts. And we just bring this time to you and thank you for the privilege of hearing from your heart and your word. Amen. disrespected, humiliated, despised, and betrayed. 
My home life was um, very chaotic. It was crazy, and it was torn apart from the very beginning. My mother married my father simply as a means to get out of her parents' home, and she didn't love him. My mother made it clear to my father after marriage that this was a marriage of convenience and that she didn't ever want to have children. As her alcoholic drinking went out of control, my father struggled to maintain some kind of organized home life. And seven years into their marriage, I was born. The pregnancy was an accident. My mother was really angry about this pregnancy and during the pregnancy, blaming the baby for now being trapped in this god-awful marriage, as she called it. She hated being pregnant. My mother was a strikingly beautiful woman, and she hated what pregnancy was doing to her body. She hated the sickness that she felt, and she told others who then told me that she hated the baby's movements inside her. From my earliest memories, I can't remember ever feeling warmth or love from my mother. I don't have a single memory of being hugged or kissed by her. Not one. I can't remember a time when she said that she loved me or when she said to someone else that she cared about me and perhaps they would convey it to me. That just never happened. I don't remember any gestures or any looks that conveyed in any way that I was important to her or that I was accepted by her. In my earliest years, she just seemed indifferent to me. I remember feeling in preschool that my mother didn't like me and that she wished I wasn't there. Through my child's heart, I felt rejected and despised by both my parents. My mother paid little to no attention to me except to trot me out to show, show me off to others if um, I was reflecting well on her at that point. And my father was always gone. He, was, he went on business trips continually, or if he were home, he would be preoccupied by his work, or he would disregard me or ignore me because he was busy trying to get his share of my mother's attention. For my mother, more and more was, of her attention was given to alcohol. One night when I was seven, um, my father was again away on a very long business trip and I heard some noises. I woke up in the middle of the night and I heard these noises and this time I went out and I walked into the, into the front room and um, we had a couch that pulled out onto a bed and I saw my mother there with a man. Um, I stood there frozen for a time, just looking, and then I quietly tiptoed back to my room and I got into my bed and I pulled the blankets up over my head and stayed there all night long. Never told it, never said a thing about that. When at the end of my business, the business trip, when my father came home though, <clears throat> I worked up the courage to tell him what I'd seen. And he was comforting to me. He thanked me for telling him. And I remember thinking, oh, thank God. Now this is all going to change. I distinctly remember feeling these feelings of intense relief that I had finally told. So this wasn't the first time that this had occurred. It's just the first time I stood there watching it. That I'd finally told and that I'd said some truth about what our family was really like. But nothing changed. In fact, things became much much worse. Later, in a comment that my mother made, I realized that my father had told her what I had said to him, and I knew instinctively that she was going to make me pay. The rules in our house were always don't talk, don't trust, don't feel, and perfect the art of pretending. I had broken all those rules. I had dared to tell the truth, I had dared to feel my feelings, I had dared to trust my father, and I had dared to not pretend that everything was all right. I'd broken all the rules, 
from that point on, I felt very much like her target. And now I know that that was true. The only place where I felt accepted growing up and cared for and even somewhat loved was in church. And not so much by the people in church. They didn't know how to connect with me and I surely didn't know how to connect with them. But by God himself. The only one that I believed really knew this person named Jesus was my grandmother. Her relationship with God set the stage for my own heart to believe that he was real and that he cared for me. Growing up from the beginning until the teenage years when I left my um, family home, I always went to church every week and many times a week and I always went by myself. By the time I was 12, the dynamics between my mother and me had intensified significantly. No longer was there just her benign neglect and indifference. Now my mother had actually begun to display the fact that she despised me and that she wished to harm me. I had most definitely become, become her target. She would tell me horrible things about myself. She would call me names. She would tell me of the terrible things that awaited me in the future because, you know, that's just the way you are. You think you're better than me, but you aren't. One of the greatest fears of my life growing up and in virtually all of my adult years was that I was going to become like my mother. As I reached adolescence, she was actively addicted to alcohol and she used prescription and recreational drugs. She was totally self-absorbed and she was self-focused. I was starkly aware that she regarded me in all aspects of life as her competition. If I was pretty, she was prettier. If I was smart, she was so much smarter. If I had a boyfriend, she would flirt with him and entice his affections away from me. In school, I was a straight-A student, yet she never looked at my schoolwork or any of my grades or any of the awards that I got. I can't remember either of my parents being involved in any way with what I was doing in school. Both of my parents skipped my high school graduation and they didn't acknowledge my graduation at all. I got no card or um, no gift, not even a word of congratulations. In my teen years, my mother's intent towards me turned malevolent. She wasn't by that time just ignoring me. Now she was calculating ways to show me disrespect and to make me disrespect myself. She would put me in humiliating situations that I felt no way out of. She introduced me to drugs and she provided the drugs for me. She bought me alcohol and she would set up drinking parties with my friends or with her friends. She created situations that were calculated to ensure sexual moral impurity and she insisted that I participate. She used me as a lure to entice men and she enticed boyfriends my age away from me. She would set me up with older men for her own amusement. She showed her contempt for me by laughing the few times that I came to her to ask her to stop doing this with me. Or she would pretend that she was doing no such thing, that she was simply getting some people together to have a little party, and that if I had any class, I would know how to behave. Our talks always made me feel that I was in the wrong, and they deeply confused me. They were crazy-making to me. I wasn't sure if what I was seeing and what I was experiencing was the truth, or if what she said was the truth. She had a way of twisting the truth in a way that sounded truthful to me. I got really confused. Eventually, I just stopped talking to her or to my father or to basically anyone. At 17, I put myself into a Christian residential drug treatment program. It was a one-year program. 
And the whole time that I was there, my family didn't visit me that entire year. And my mother sold or gave away all of my possessions. And she took my dog to the pound. And she sold my car. And she moved into my bedroom. And she made it her own. And I never again returned home. My adult years were filled with accomplishment. Since I'd been raised to base my worth on my performance, I was really good at performing. Although on the outside, I became a success, on the inside, I was frightened and I felt utterly alone. My mother taught me that performance was the key to not being despised, and that poor performance, meaning not doing what she wanted me to do, meant that I would be cast off from her and utterly disregarded. She could do something called splitting. She could split me very easily. And that would be a total cutoff. Being unloved was difficult enough growing up in my house. But being totally ignored was absolutely unbearable to me. The tension between my outward success in my adult life and my inward feelings of deep need and inadequacy played out in a variety of ways. I had bouts of depression virtually throughout my adult life, and I had several long clinical depressions. I became overwhelmed by life, and I could go into these places of really deep hiding where I would withdraw from everything and everyone except for work. I was always very functional at work. <laughs> I clung to the exterior trappings of a successful life, continuing to be functional in my career. And I tried to convince myself that all was OK. But it wasn't. My core problem was that I didn't know love. I didn't know what real love felt like. I had never experienced love of any sort in my family not from my mother or from my father. And I hadn't been very successful in getting love even in my adult life. I didn't really love others. And I had no idea how to extend some kind of loving concern even towards myself. Despised, rejected, deeply disrespected people cannot take love inside. We cannot. We are far too fearful for that and we don't believe that we're worth it. We also become very well defended against that. When you've never had love, when love dares to come towards you, it feels like pain. It hurts. It's a very scary thing. If you've never had love and it dares to come close, it's painful. <laughs> At the point of my most intense pain, I reached out to a woman that I'd known in a church that I had attended years before. And she reached back. She listened. She gave me input if I asked her. She prayed with me and not at me. And I slowly, very slowly, began to tell her little bits of my life. She listened. And then I dared. And then I dared to tell her some, a uh, little bit of my childhood experiences. And she listened. And she cared. And she didn't judge me. And then I began to tell her some of the truth of my childhood experiences, starting with the less shocking and slowly over time moving into the more shocking things. And she listened. And she believed what I was saying. And she validated my experiences. And I began to believe that those soul-killing things that I had seen in my childhood and that I had done in my childhood really had occurred via a person who despised me for no reason that I could see, my own mother. And that made me want to do something about this reality of the truth, to acknowledge it as real and to try to resolve it. So she and I began to pray together about these things, telling God the truth and hearing him accept the facts just as I stated them, and then asking him to come to me and to heal me and to love me and to restore me. We prayed together 
and we prayed apart. We prayed together and we prayed apart. And I brought God into the reality of my past life and into the reality of my current life. This was not a three-minute, I mean a three-meeting deal. This was not just one counseling session over a course of four days or five days. This went on for a couple years. This woman met with me off and on for about three years at this time. And I was willing to continue to meet with her because over time she demonstrated to me that she deeply cared about me. And this was key for me. She cared. For me, as a fully grown person, encountering this woman was the first time that I had, the first time that I had felt that somebody cared about me, who I really was inside. Another key for me was that she refused to give up on me. Her caring broke down the, my walls of mistrust and broke through all of the defense mechanisms that I had erected over the years. And during this period of our meetings, she became trained as a caring for the heart counselor. And she began to incorporate those prayer methods into our praying together. I never took any tests. I never attended any classes. I have not watched a single video. Never felt, filled out any worksheets. I guess I'm just not typical of some of the caring for the heart folks. But what she did is she just started praying with me in this new way. And I began praying for myself in this new way. I grabbed hold of that method of praying because it felt to me totally honest and absolutely real. I'd been going to church my entire life. I'd been praying my entire life, but this was a type of praying that I had never experienced before. And I loved that it was so very simple. And one of the things that I loved about its simplicity is that no longer, by utilizing this method of caring for the heart prayer, could I hide in this intellectual maze that I'd constructed for myself over so many years. I found myself praying directly from my heart and bypassing my head. And the chains in my life began to shake. And then they began to break. And healing started touching all of my points of pain. And new foundations began to build under me. And a core identity began to set up inside of me. And I began to pray in this new way on my own for myself. And the pain of my life started lifting. And for the very first time in my entire life, I began to feel love growing inside of me. And this began a process for me. It was pain confessed, removed, and replaced by love. Pain confessed, removed, and replaced by love. That describes the experience that I began to have over and over. And these were more than just experiences. There was a quality about it. It's hard to put into words. There was a tangible reality of what began to take place inside of me. It wasn't just that wishful thinking, that hopeful thinking, that application of scripture. Not that there's any wrong, anything wrong with that, but there's something real and solid that began to set up inside of me. It's called love. I could feel it and it was real. And God used this practice of bringing him into my points of pain to release me from the bondages of my past and to set me free. I'm so grateful for this freedom and that this freedom had already begun for me those many years before, because not too long ago, my mother died. She was a very wealthy woman, and um, now there are others, well, I should say this first. Her last act um, on earth towards me was to betray me and to disinherit me. And she was a wealthy woman, and so now there are others who are multimillionaires. 
And I will never forget the words that I read in her will when it was mailed to me. And I read through her will to convince me that this was true, what she'd done. And I read this sentence, and it said, I, her name, have intentionally failed to provide for my daughter my name. And this is legalese. I understood it even when I was reading it. This is legalese to declare in a lawful way that she knows what she's doing and that she intends to do what she's doing. I know that. I've, I've been to law school. But for me, as God shined his light on this heartbreaking, shattering truth, this sentence became a declaration of my mother's culpability in how she had treated me my entire life. It was as if she was declaring finally, boldly, to the world that she did intentionally fail to provide for me my entire life. God's used this sentence that was intended to harm me for my good. Can you see it? It's, this is how God can work in these situations that just seem like he could never use that. But it, it's, it's hit my heart that she's finally declared to me the truth of that she did intentionally fail to provide for me, which is in fact my experience. And he's used what she's intended, what she intended for harm, for my good. I see clearly now that for reasons that I will never understand and that I believe that she herself didn't understand, she intended to harm me. Later as an adult, I learned that she had a personality disorder. And it's a type of personality disorder that makes a person utterly um, incapable of feeling empathy at all. I found that there was just something powerful in me by just finally admitting the reality that my mother didn't care about me. Instead of trying to hide, as I'd done for my whole life, from the horror of that, when you dare to tell someone that your mother hates you, they just, they, it's so horrific that they step back from you. I'd learned long ago not to even express that. But once I began to admit that reality, instead of hiding from the horror of it, once I began to just admit it and take that to the Lord, because admitting it just leaves you in the pain, but taking it to the Lord, he began to remove the sting from that truth. And through a process, he replaced that empty place in me with his love. Yes, he did. I declare that to you. <laughs> I wish that my story was a story of reconciliation. You know, I hear, I've heard all this week and I've heard before these beautiful stories of couples where we were like this or she was like that or I was like this, but now it's like this. I wish my story was a story of reconciliation. God knows how many times I prayed for that, but it, it is not. But my story is a story of redemption. While the depth of her despising of me can still shock me, I am free from the harm that that act and all of her previous acts have caused for me my whole life. I am free of that harm. I've told God the truth about that pain. He's come into it. He's dealt with it. And he set me free from the things of my past that had for so long continued to bind me up and hold me captive. This has happened to me through his grace and through a woman who befriended me, who cared enough to just keep coming after me even as I did my best to run away from her. And through caring for the heart ministry, which taught me the truth of telling the truth and taking my pain to him and bringing him into the pain and with him dealing with it, letting him take it 
and setting me free. Today, I'm not the, one, the woman that I once was. I have no depression. I haven't had for years. I no longer hide in my physical life or in my emotional life. I'm open and I'm vulnerable with others. I'm able to give and I'm able to receive love. I bring God into all aspects of my life, good and bad. I have ceased pretending. All of my facades, and I had many of them, are gone. Inside, in those secret places where only God and I know, I am free. It can still bring me to tears to just say that out loud. I started out in life despised, rejected, disrespected, humiliated, and ultimately betrayed. And I lived that identity out for most of my life. And now, I'm living my life accepted, loved, approved of, wanted, and needed, cared for, regarded, respected, and fully capable of loving deeply and loving freely. This healing prayer process of examining my past and bringing Jesus into the pain and still bringing Jesus into my life today, into the everyday circumstances, has freed me. And it is my privilege and my joy now to be assisting other women to step into that freedom too. like that testimony um, what happened was one lady in a church just took time to listen to find the cause and to pray and to care That's all she did and this was the result after three years of just befriending another person and I'd like to encourage you because you might know of a friend that's struggling obviously the issues are always different but it, uh, if you have a person that you know that's struggling uh, this method works to actually resolve their pain I'd like for you to take the outline uh, picture one's heart uh, individuals have asked me John where do you get this in the Bible uh, the fact of praying with people in this fashion as I was reading the Psalms I began to realize David prayed this same method of prayer and I would like to just in the last 20 minutes we have tonight uh, and I'm not going to have time to go through this all in detail but I'd like to go through and identify the fact that David asked for pictures of his heart damaged David asked God to heal his heart David asked for a safe place uh, when he struggled with issues in his life and Jesus prompted answers to his questions and I'd like to share that with you tonight it's interesting in Psalms chapter 55 verse 22 uh, and, 20, and Psalms 22 24 cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you he will never let the righteous fall for he, God, is not despised or disdained the sufferings of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Psalms 9, verse 12, God does not ignore the cry of the afflicted. David gives a description of emotional pain that he experienced in his personal life. He says in Psalms 25, I am lonely and afflicted. Psalms 31, my life is consumed by anguish. My strength fails because of my affliction. Psalms 55, my thoughts trouble me. I am distraught. Psalms 55, my heart is in anguish within me. Psalm 69, I am in pain and distress. My heart is wounded within me. Psalms 109. 
Psalms 116, I am greatly afflicted. Psalms 119, my soul is weary with sorrow. All of those verses, David is describing things that has happened to him. And he's struggling with those emotionally inside of his heart. But notice secondly, David gives a description of being alone in his pain. I looked for someone, I looked for sympathy, but there was none for comforters, but I found none. No one is concerned for me, no one cares for my life. A number of years ago, I was doing a training seminar in Atlanta and a girl was forced by her mother to come to the seminar and she was bored. And I talked about drawing a picture of your heart damaged. She had a perfectionist mother who was constantly critical and angry at her. And she drew this picture while I was speaking for 35 hours. She was bored. It's a picture of a heart broken, chained, and the padlock, the key is broken and her heart is damaged. A couple from our Caring for the Heart ministry uh, befriended her that week and she began to share her pain and they walked her through a prayer to disconnect her pain from her mother. She was still bored with what I was saying so she drew a picture of her heart healed. It's a heart with uh, Jesus sewing her heart back together the chain is broken off and Jesus took the pain out of her heart. All the couple did was listened, understood her pain, cared about it, and led her in a prayer to resolve the pain inside. David gives a description of being, um, of his heart damaged. It's interesting, in my office I ask people, draw me a picture of your heart damaged by whatever they've experienced. Some people say, my heart is shriveled up. Others say, my heart is hard as a rock. My heart is shattered into a million pieces. My heart is dead. My heart is empty. My heart has been stabbed. What does David say about his heart? He first of all says, my heart is smitten like grass and is withered away. He says that's a picture of his heart. If you look at the context of Psalms 102, he's depressed because people are angry with him. They're accusing him. And he says, because of their anger and accusations, my heart is like a bunch of grass chopped and withering away. Secondly, he says, my heart is like a broken piece of pottery. I am forgotten as though I were dead. I have become a broken piece of pottery. Now, if you saw this on the side of the sidewalk, would you pick it up? Some of you would pick it up and throw it in the trash. But most of us, there's no value to a piece of pottery like this. You say, you can't drink out of it. What value is this? There is no value. And David says, because others have forgotten me as though I were dead, I feel like a broken piece of pottery that no one values. It's what he describes his life by in the Psalms. The third picture is my heart is like melted wax, like a candle melted down. He's surrounded by critical people who reject him and he says my heart is turned to wax. Description of his heart, damaged. Thirdly, he says my heart is like a worm. Now I had trouble finding a worm because you can go find a turtle in the store, you can find a tiger, you can find a giraffe, you can find a monkey, they have all kinds of things in the store. But the only place I found a worm was in a fishing store. So I had to get a fishing line and cut the hook off because I didn't want to catch myself up here because they don't sell worms. Nobody values worms unless it's a, a candy worm. I guess you can buy those. Um, I used to show candy worms because couldn't find a worm and someone found this worm and gave it to me after a seminar like this. But David says, I'm despised and ridiculed by others, Psalms 22. I am a worm and not a man. 
I am the scorn of man and despised by the people. David's description of his life emotionally damaged. Psalms 109, David says after he's accused and ridiculed, my heart is wounded within me. All of these are descriptions of David's heart. I often lead a person in the prayer after they've described their pain, what happened to them in their life, and I lead them in a prayer and they follow me in my office. Jesus, could you draw a picture of my heart? And a gentleman will repeat that. Jesus, could you draw a picture of my heart damaged? I've described the pain um, to John. Would you draw a picture of my heart? And I just wait for Jesus to draw a picture of their heart. What happens is they begin to cry when they see the picture of their heart because the picture Jesus draws of their heart is actually how they're feeling inside and Jesus knows exactly the picture that fits the person's issues inside. But David also gives a positive picture of his heart, not just a negative. He says, my heart is so excited, it's like the joy of harvest. Now I grew up just southeast of here, um, about 50 miles by Newton, and I was raised on a wheat farm. The most exciting 10 days of the year was wheat harvest. To be able to get the combines out, get them all ready, I had to grease them, that was my job. I had four brothers, and my dad had two combines, and we had 300 acres of wheat to combine. To be able to take a truckload of wheat to the Newton elevator, and there would be a line two blocks long, and to wait in line and get all excited. We got pop in those days uh, for dumping our wheat, and we'd take pop back to the combines. That was the most exciting, probably the most tiring time of the year. But farmers only get one paycheck. It's the wheat harvest. And so farmers look forward to that one paycheck. And I remember my dad coming home from the elevator with the wheat check. We also had cattle, so he had check from cattle and Milo. But the joy of harvest, and David says, you have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. He is describing the joy of harvest. Some of you ladies know what it feels like to go to your garden to harvest things out of your garden and you get so excited because everything on your table is from your garden and you get excited in the same way. I often in my office ask a person after their pain is gone, Jesus, can you draw a picture of my heart with my pain gone? And often they see a heart that has little legs on it that's dancing, leaping for joy. And David experienced that in Psalms 28. My heart trusts in him and I am helped. My heart leaps for joy, a picture of David's heart. The third picture is David sees a deer anticipating a drink from a stream of water, Psalms 42. As the deer anticipates uh, drinking from a stream, so my soul anticipates taking in the encouragement from a relationship with God. One that's more familiar is in Psalms chapter 1, he visualizes and sees a tree planted by a stream of water. That tree is firmly rooted, has plenty of water, produces fruit, is healthy and prospers, and he sees his heart as a prosperous tree. He also compares in Psalms 52 his heart to an olive tree that is flourishing. He also uses the illustration of a contented lamb in Psalms 23 and Psalms 100. The Lord is my shepherd, and David, being a shepherd, would have the visualization of a shepherd. Now, my wife grew up on a ranch in Nebraska where her father loved to have sheep. My father was never patient with sheep. One summer, my father bought a couple dozen sheep to eat the grass and weeds off of our yard. And so we fenced our yard in and put the sheep inside. And my dad tried to chase sheep like you chase cattle, and it didn't work. 
and my dad got rid of him within two months and he never bought any sheep since because my dad used the hot shot or two before uh, if the cattle didn't go fast enough and when you did that with sheep they just scattered and then you couldn't get them to go anywhere. Uh, my father-in-law was a lot more patient and um, my wife grew up um, with a lamb. When I led my wife in a prayer with issues in her personal life, her pictures always were pictures of lambs or shepherds because that's what she grew up with and that's the picture that God gave her. The second area that I'd like to focus on is David's description of God's healing. Not only do we want to ask, Jesus, can you draw a picture of a heart damaged? But Jesus, how would you heal my heart from what I experienced? You notice um, the lady in the testimony, she had all kinds of pain. And Marilyn, the person that befriended her, began to identify those issues. And when she identified that issue, she says, do you mind if I pray with you? And she would lead her in a prayer, and that's how she lost all of her pain, because Jesus healed her heart. The Bible says that Jesus heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. May your unfailing love be my comfort. A missionary wife from Nigeria came into our training one week, and she had a lot of pain from her childhood that never got resolved, and she struggled on the mission field with that pain and as the Spirit of God prompted healing she saw this picture of Jesus healing her heart. Being an artist coming from Newton, Kansas, she drew this picture after Jesus prompted that picture in her heart and that picture was how Jesus healed her heart from the pain that she experienced in her personal life. In Psalms chapter 30, David says, I called to you for help and you healed me. You hear the desire of the afflicted, you encourage them, and you listen to their cry. For he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and needy. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. You notice each of these verses is tied to God desiring to heal the emotional damaged heart. Let's look at what David says in the Psalms about God healing the heart. In Psalms chapter 30, you turn my wailing into dancing. David is weeping, and after Jesus healed, he's dancing. You took off my sackcloth, sackcloth in the Bible um, was used when a person was in sorrow, and they'd go to the city dump in sackcloth and cry in their pain. And David says, you turned my way, you turned my, excuse me, you took off my sackcloth and you turned it and you closed me with joy. So God took off the sackcloth and replaced it with his joy in David's heart. The third illustration is God gave him his unfailing love. He replaced his pain with God's love. Psalm 68, God began to bear his burden so he didn't have to carry them. Often when I'm in my office, Jesus, what do you want me to do with my pain? And Jesus comes and he lifts the burdens off their shoulder and takes it away, or Jesus says, come and drop your burden at the cross. A picture of God's healing of a person's heart. Psalms 31, David is rejoicing in God's love and he feels God caring about his heart and his heart is healed. You notice in each of these five different pictures, God is healing a person's heart from the damage that they receive from pain in their past that they've experienced. But let's notice also David gives a description of a safe place God gave to him whenever he uh, was damaged. Often when a person comes into my office, they're fearful because their father was angry. 
their boss is angry and they're scared to go back to work, but they're 40 years of age and they're scared to go back into the same environment. And I pray, Jesus, could you heal me from the anger that I experienced from my father? And I let them repeat that and we wait for Jesus to draw a picture of how he wants to heal that. God can give a picture, he can give a thought, he can give a verse of scripture, whatever God wants to prompt to that heart to heal that. And then we ask Jesus, when someone is angry at work, or someone is angry at me at church, can you make a safe place where I can go, where I can stay relaxed, so I don't have to face that same pain again? David gives a number of safe places that his heart went whenever he was damaged. He says, first of all, he sees a bird flying out of a trap. Now this is a trap I used, I guess about 55 years ago when I was a little boy in Newton, Kansas, and we used to catch bunny rabbits with it. And um, we only did it once because my mother didn't enjoy skinning the rabbit and we didn't know how to do it. And I'm not sure we enjoyed eating the rabbit after we did it. But anyway, I caught one rabbit with his trap. But David describes the fact that he feels safe as a bird flies out of a trap. He says, I am released from my pain and I feel safe because I no longer are entrapped in my pain. The second illustration of safety, he says, uh, I'm like a bird flying into the desert to be at rest. David was a military man, and I'm told that the best place to be if you're in battle is in the desert where you can see for 30 miles because the enemy is not behind a tree, it's not behind a, a rock ledge, it's not behind a mountain ready to come out. And God shows him uh, a picture of a dove flying into the desert alone totally secure from any enemy attacked. Another one that we often think about is David gets a picture of being under the shadow of God's wing. In Psalms 36, I will find refuge under the shadow of your wing. Psalms 57, I will take refuge in the shadow of your wing. Psalm 61, I long to take refuge in the shelter of your wing. Psalm 63, I sing in the shadow of your wing. Psalms 91, I will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. He will cover me with his faithfulness. The fourth illustration of protection as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. Mountains surrounding is a picture of safety and God gives them. And then the final one, is being uh, sheltered in God's presence and then being held by God's hand. It's interesting, often when I lead a person in a prayer, Jesus, can you make a safe place where I can go whenever I'm insecure? Jesus often says, let me take your hand and I will hold your hand. My wife and I have 19 grandchildren and the 20th grandchild is in this room to be born in a couple months, so we'll have 20 grandchildren. A, a child, when insecure, will always reach out to take a parent's hand, to take a grandparent's hand because of that insecurity. But many of us, even as adults, are insecure in our pain. And Jesus offers his hand to walk us through the difficult circumstances in life. We sing a song does Jesus care when my heart is pained too deeply for mirth and song? As the burdens press and the cares distress and the way grows weary and long. Oh yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary, the long nights dreary, I know my Savior cares. Does Jesus care when my heart way is dark with a nameless dread and fear? As the daylight fades into deep night shades, does he care enough to be near? Oh yes, he cares. I just want to close this session by saying, God cares 
about what you struggle with. He first of all wants to give you a picture of, his, of your heart damaged, if it was damaged. Then he wants to heal your heart. And he wants to make a safe place where you can be secure with him. I'd like to just challenge you as we close this evening. Um, we've shared this morning, this evening, and you may have all of a sudden found a piece of pain in your heart that you didn't realize was there. Maybe you knew it was there and didn't know how to resolve it. Could I encourage you just to ask Jesus tonight, could you give me a picture of my heart damaged by what happened to me in that event, that circumstance? And let Jesus draw a picture of your heart. You might cry because of the pain of that experience. And then just pray, Jesus, could you heal my heart? Jesus can respond with a picture. If you were damaged at three, four, five, young, you'll usually get a, a picture. If you were damaged later, you'll get maybe a thought, a verse that Jesus prompts to heal your heart. And then if it's an issue you're still fearful of, Jesus, can you make a safe place where I can go to be secure with you? Gary Smalley was a professional counselor for years. You've probably all read his books. His son was in graduate school to study counseling. And in his thesis that he had to write, he went and interviewed and he checked to see what counseling models were working and what counseling models were not working. After he did his research, he went back to his father and he said to his father, there's only one counseling method that changes people's lives. And that is when you lead a person in a prayer and Jesus heals the heart. That's the only method that's working. The other method, just talking to people, doesn't really change them. They still struggle. But this method, everything switches like Alexandria in the testimony. In the testimony. You look at a person like that and say, that person could never be healed. That's, that's a mess. But Jesus healed her because one person cared and led that person to Jesus and Jesus healed her heart. And that's what changes lives. So I just want to leave you with that. I'll turn it back to the pastor um, to close this evening and um, appreciate you coming. And we'll go to the next topic tomorrow night. Tomorrow night we're going to be focusing on uh, resolving emotional pain and we're going to identify five pain issues that people have and then how to resolve bitterness. stand with me this evening. We're going to close with a couple verses of uh, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus.
been a full day, been a good day. And as we reflect upon what we've learned today, we want to do just that. We want to turn our eyes on Jesus. And with that, let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace and your mercy and your love. And we do want to turn our eyes on you. And we want to take your word. We want to stand on your word. And we want to allow the truths and the principles in your word to point us to you. And through prayer, Lord, we ask that you will touch our hearts, that you will meet us. Lord, you know each one of our hearts, the condition of our heart, what it looks like. And Lord, as you give us a picture of our heart, we want to give you the opportunity to touch it this week and to heal it. And so we ask that you will do these things for your honor and glory. And we want to praise your name. And we ask all of this in your name. Amen. Tomorrow night at 6.